Hello, everyone. Welcome to Happy Hour with Operation Happy Nurse, where we openly discuss mental health as practicing nurses and the reality of what it means in healthcare. We are your lovely hosts. My name is Olivia. And I'm Carly. And we hope you enjoy. Thanks for listening. Welcome back, guys, to Happy Hour with Operation Happy Nurse. This is Carly, and I'm with my co-host, Olivia. Hello. Today, we have the opportunity to interview our first guest ever on Happy Hour, and we are joined by Dr. Tim Kasser. He is a doctor of psychology, professor, and author. He taught at Knox College in Illinois, where he retired last year, and he authored over 120 scientific articles, book chapters um, regarding materialism, goals, well-being, environmental sustainability, and other topics as well that he will go further into. So we're very happy to have him here today. Honored to be your first guest. Yeah, we're, we're very happy to have you here. <laughs> so just to dive deep into things, um, can you just initially tell us a little bit about your background um, as well as what led you to study psychology? Well, I, um, when I was an undergraduate at uh, Vanderbilt University back in the early 1980s, I was actually pre-med. And uh, chemistry, physics, and biology weren't going so great. So I started to look around at uh, other options. And I had taken um, an intro to psych class, which I enjoyed reasonably well. And uh, my best friend's father was actually a psychology professor at Vanderbilt. And he sort of saw that I was kind of lost, I think, and uh, pulled me into psychology a little bit and got me involved in uh, the honors program in psychology. Um, And so I started doing research by the time I was a junior in college and uh, really loved doing research, loved the approach of psychology and went on to graduate school and then went and became a professor. So uh, that's how I got involved in psych. That's awesome. And it's, wow. it's great that you're able to have someone, an outlet to kind of pull you in because I feel like it's so common. Um, as an undergrad, I know myself, my, my degrees were business and finance, my first degrees as well before I decided to go back to school. So mm-hmm. it, it's very common to kind of veer and, you know, just, just kind of move around within degrees. But that's great that you were able to have someone to kind of, you know, help you really find what you enjoyed doing. And yeah and research being one of them. So tell us a little bit more about the research. Is that extremely common within studying psychology? I'm not too knowledgeable um, with if that's like the certain path that people take. So how did you get, how did you get into that? Well, I mean, the first thing I'd say is that psychology considers itself first and foremost a science. Um, Some psychologists think of psychology as akin to biology or chemistry, because, of course, we study the brain and neurons Mm -hmm. and things like that. That's not what I studied, but that's what um, some psychologists study or visual perception or whatever. Mm -hmm. Other psychologists, you know, are more interested in mental disorders or psychotherapy or personality or social interactions. So it's a it's a very broad field. And as a result, people can go all sorts of different directions. Um, if they're a psychology major. So having been a professor for a quarter century, I certainly saw that in my students. Mm-hmm. I would say that the, that the largest percentage of my students went in uh, sort of a therapy direction, you know, would become a social worker, a counselor, okay. or a therapist. Some make their way into industry, you know, and will work in personnel offices or HR offices. 
Um, and, you know, some go to law school, actually a lot go to med school or become nurses. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, some, some become researchers like myself. So, um, but psychology, especially for the therapists, um, I think as with nursing, the idea is that the interventions that we do with patients are based on the best possible research that we have, right? Um, You know, so it takes a whole bunch of psychological researchers out there understanding the basics of anxiety, for example, um, or other kinds of issues in order to help therapists then successfully treat anxiety Mm -hmm. or whatever it is. So um, I personally loved research from the very beginning. You know, I, I kind of a numbers guy. And I also, um, I think what I loved, especially about research at the start, and that continued throughout my career was that you can ask some question and then you go and figure out a way to try to answer it by collecting some data and seeing what happens you want to make or recognize that you weren't right, you know, and uh, <laughs> revise your beliefs and set off um, in some other, in some other ways. And you can study just about anything. And I think that's, that to me is part of what's so fun about it. Definitely. It gives you variety. Um, and it's, it's funny that you mentioned that there are a lot of nurses or they go on to, you know, relate into the medical field. There's actually in my program right now, um, there's three students who their previous degree was psychology and mm-hmm. they're transitioning into healthcare. And, you know, it's, it's extremely common. It's such collaborative care. Um, it's, you yeah. know, a lot of like interprofessional work. So I can, I can definitely see the correlation there. Um, but as you kind of touched on, you know, being a professor and how have you dealt with just stress in the past along with, you know, I'm sure that there's so many different outlets that come with, um, you know, different stress levels, different things you deal with just as going down, like being a professor Mm -hmm. and, and managing curriculum and, and everything associated with that. So tell us a little bit more about, about how you've dealt with stress in the past. Sure. Well, I would say one of the big things, of course, would be to talk to my wife, talk to other people who I was close with or who were involved in whatever the stressor was, you know, and either have the chance to vent a little bit or get other people's perspective on what I was experiencing or, you know, receive some empathy, (laughs) you know, that what I was experiencing, you know, clearly was stressful. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'd say, you know, that was one. I think a second for me is, you know, I've, I, um, I'm a long-term piano player and blues singer. And so, you know, the pretty much the whole time I've been, well, yeah, definitely the whole time I've been a professor, you know, I sit down at the piano and, and play and sing. And, you know, that takes me, gets me out of the typical mode of things that um, are stressing me. And I'd say the third main thing that that certainly was the case that helped me with stress, although in another way it actually, you know, caused stress because it caused more work. But, um, you know, the whole time that I was a professor at Knox, we lived on 10 acres and we had a donkey and goats and sheep and chickens and two big gardens and et cetera. And, um, you know, that was a lot of work, but it actually, it was this totally different kind of work. Than being Definitely. A you know, and so, you know, if, if it was time to stack the hay, then I would go stack the hay and then I'd be done or time to pick the cherries. I'd pick the cherries and I'd be mm-hmm. done, you know? And so it was physical. It was more of a short-term gratification than pretty much anything as a professor is. 
Um, and, you know, it was, it felt very real in a way, you know, very natural. It yeah. usually meant I was outside. Um, even if it was 10 below, you know, I'd be outside or if it was 95 degrees, I'd be outside, you know? And so, um, I think all, I think that definitely helped me to, to keep centered and, and to cope with stress. Definitely. It's, it's nice when there's an outlet that may seem like work, but it's just kind of, it's different than what you're used right. to. It's different than yeah. the normal job, <laughs> I guess right. you could say. So that's nice that you're able to actually focus on that and, and that you have the opportunity to do that when, when you want to. But um, kind of gearing a little bit more towards some of your work, um, we've, we've kind of dug a little bit deeper and noticed that some of your historical work has focused on people's values and their goals mm-hmm. um, and how they relate to one's quality of life. So can you share with us some of, you know, the changes that you may have seen over the years and maybe even if age demographic, um, you know, just mental health awareness and other factors have affected these changes that you've seen over time throughout your research? Mm -hmm. Well, this is basically the main thing that I've written about over the last, you know, 30 years is people's values and goals and how they relate to quality of life. The stuff about coloring has kind of been on the side. Mm -hmm. Um, So what I've really studied is whether people focus on what we call materialistic goals for money and status and image, or if they focus on what we call intrinsic goals for personal growth and affiliation and connection to other people and connection to the broader community. And what we found in literally dozens, if not hundreds of studies by now, is that when people focus on those materialistic goals at a relatively high level, they report relatively low levels of personal well-being, whereas when they focus on those intrinsic goals for their own growth or for connection to other people or for helping other people, um, they report relatively high levels of personal well-being. Um, and so, you know, that finding, I would say, has not actually changed much over time. You know, I mean, we, mm-hmm. we pretty much find that across cultures. We found that across um, different age groups. So we've studied kids as young as 10 and people as old as 80. Um, we've looked at people in dozens of cultures by now. Um, mm-hmm. We've looked, been doing this research for 30 years. Um, so the, the fundamental finding that, um, that the different pursuit of different kinds of values and goals has different relationships to well-being, I would say, is, is pretty stable. Um, the, the one thing we have seen over the years is a general uptick in people's relative priority they put on materialistic goals, and that comes at the cost of the priority they put on intrinsic goals. So. Mm-hmm. Over the years, you know, the, the data go back to about the 60s or so. Um, and the best data are with high school students and with college students. Mm-hmm. Um, and what, what we've seen over that time period is that, um, you know, between in, in, the, in the 60s, the late 60s and the very early 70s, extent of materialism, I wouldn't call it very low, but it was relatively low. And then uh, throughout the late 70s and especially through the 80s, there was a pretty dramatic increase in terms of um, how much youth valued those materialistic goals. Um, It started to level off a little bit. Uh, That increase started to level off a little bit in the 
uh, 90s and early 2000s, but the general trend was still upward. So it wasn't flat and it definitely has not gone back down. Um, you know, so, so I would say that that's the, the primary trend um, that we've seen over the decades is, and it's an unfortunate trend, obviously, given that materialistic values are associated with lower well-being. Yeah, but right. it's also consistent with what we know has happened with uh, people's well-being in general over the last decades, which is people are reporting higher levels of anxiety, higher levels of depression um, than they were back then. So mm -hmm. um, I'm not trying to say that materialistic values is the only cause of that or even the primary cause, but it seems to at least be one of the um, variables in the mix. Mm -hmm. And you said, just touching on that, um, materialistic things and focusing primarily on college students, high school students, younger individuals. You, you mentioned that you gathered some really great data from this age demographic. Um, do you, do you, is it fair to say that our advancements in technology and our screen time quote unquote, which is something that Carly and I kind of touched on in our last episode, mm -hmm. is that, do you think that that's supplemental to some of these, some of this data that you're collecting? And I know from myself personally, it's so easy to focus on screen time and TV and your phone. And there's just so many different outlets of communication now. We tend to stray away from real live things that are in front of us and coloring books, for example. That's a really great kind of just bringing this all full circle. We don't focus so much on, on doing things that are in front of us rather than doing things that, you know, have advanced over the course of the couple years. So do you, do you think, is it fair to say that um, maybe some of the modern day advancements that we've been introduced to have supplemented some of these, um, some of the data that you've been able to collect? Well, but if by supplemented, you mean if part of why people are more materialistic is because of more screen time? Is that what you mean? Yeah. Okay. Access to. Yeah. So, the access. Yeah. So, so I would say yes and yes and no. Um, you know, on the one hand, I'm aware of no data that show that it's screen time per se. Okay. Okay. Well, we have to recognize, though, is that, but, so when you're on most screens, you are um, exposed to commercial messages, which are trying to convince you to buy something, okay? Mm -hmm. um, you know, so if you're on Facebook, you're going to be pounded with ads. If you're watching television, you're going to be pounded with ads. If you're on Instagram, you're, I mean, it's, it's, it's all about... Uh, commercial messaging, right? That's how Google makes their money. That's how Facebook makes their money. That's how commercial broadcast companies make their money. Right. And so the issue is, is that the more that you're on screens, what's actually happening is that you're being exposed to more and more commercial messages. Mm -hmm. And as you're exposed to more and more commercial messages, you receive the message that what's important in life is to make a lot of money, have a lot of possessions, have the right image, have the possessions mm. that bring you popularity etc. And it's that which we think is really the main, uh, the main thing about screens, which uh, leads to the increases in materialism, uh, not the screen time per se. Does that make Got sense? It. 
Yes. Yeah, that's really interesting that you put it now, that way. Now, that's not to say that there aren't problems with screen time, okay? I'm not trying to say that <laughs> the screen time's a great thing. That's a whole different with, conversation. <laughs> yeah, but with regard to materialistic values, okay, mm-hmm. it's really the ingestion of the consumer messages that comes via screen as opposed to the screen time itself. And just last, while we're on this topic, I just want to mention, you know, that for 25 years, I've been associated with a group called the Campaign for a Commercial-Free Childhood. Um, and I was on its board for six years, actually, um, just oh, recently cool. down from its board. So if you or your uh, listeners are interested in, in that issue, um, they've actually got uh, both a whole bunch of issues or information on their website about um, you know, the problems of marketing to children. But they mm-hmm. also have a program that's called the Screen Time Action Network, which has a whole lot of information about the problems of screen time also. So I'd encourage you and your listeners to check out Campaign for a Commercial-Free Childhood. Um, Definitely. If you're interested in that topic. And maybe something you'd want to have uh, another visitor from uh, on your show. Definitely. Well, thank you so much for, yeah. for introducing that to us and, and touching on that topic. Um, the last question that I have for you um, is kind of just surrounding some of the articles that you've produced um, pertaining to the healthcare field um, and caregiving and everything associated with that. So, so what interested you to start and to focus on these studies associated with healthcare and caregiving um, and even touching on in the cancer patient? Well, the the healthcare study that we did with the cancer patients was primarily um, a, a study that uh, Young Mi Kim, and she was the first author of, of that one, if memory serves, and uh, she invited me to, to join her with that. And, you know, I, I think that um, the, the main thing that we were, that kind of drew me into that was, uh, at, at a, a theoretical level at least, was that I was interested in the issues of how it is that um, spouses can treat each other um, when one of the spouses is quite sick. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, from, from the self-determination theory point of view, which is um, the, the theory that's informed a lot of my research over the years, um, you know, there, are, there are different kinds of styles of interaction that healthcare providers can give, that, um, that spouses can give, that teachers can give, that the bosses can give, that do a better or worse job of, of motivating other people and of meeting people's psychological needs. And so, you know, I would say that that, that study, as well as, as some other studies that we've done, um, you mm-hmm. know, on, on health-related issues, have really been focused on that, you know, trying to understand from the self-determination point of view, whether or not, you know, out there in the field, if you will, um, supporting people's choices and, you know, issues about religious really have important ramifications down the road um, for people's well-being and, and potentially even survival. Mm-hmm. So, so now what we're going to do is um, I'm going to let Carly kind of touch a little bit more on um, our series specific questions. Um, yeah. She's going to touch on some of the coloring book stuff and your experience with that. So Carly, sure. go ahead and take it away. <laughs> So as we talked about before in our last podcast, 
our whole theme for this month or series we're trying out as a form of stress relief and anxiety relief is coloring books. And Olivia and I are both super new to this. And I know Dr. Castro, you said it's not something that, you know, your main work is well-being and materialism, but that um, coloring books is something that you kind of did on the side. Yep. So I'm assuming that you have, but have you used coloring books in your own life um, as a coping mechanisms? And if you did, did it help at all? Or what did you find from that? I didn't use coloring books, but I definitely colored mandalas. Okay. Oh, okay. So, um, so this is before there were adult coloring books though. Okay. So, <laughs> you know, our, so our paper was published in 2005, a paper we'll talk about here in a minute, I'm sure. Um, and I was, you know, I was definitely drawing mandalas and coloring them. Uh, I went through a pretty heavy period actually for three, four, five years um, where I was drawing and coloring mandalas a lot. So, I mean, I had, I don't know how many, I bet you at least 10 sketchbooks full of mandalas. Um, that I had had drawn or colored um, over the years. Wow. And I wouldn't say that I it was doing it necessarily consciously, at least as stress relief, mm-hmm. but it, it kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier. It was this completely different thing than what my day-to-day life was like, right? As a professional, right? Right. And so at the end of the day, you know, to be honest, to do some more reading was kind of tiring. Um, I couldn't often play know because my kids were already asleep um Mm -hmm. and you know so i needed something else to do and uh coloring mandalas you know it was very absorbing um and at the time we did the study i was definitely in the midst of that of that period of of my life um so so certainly that is something that i i used um, a lot in the evenings as a way to kind of decompress maybe and unwind and do something that was completely different Right. No, I totally understand that. That's why we're really interested to see kind of as we go along, if it's going to be something, because it is so different than what we're used to, because for both of us, we both find exercise is a huge coping mechanism, you could call it, or an outlet. And so just sitting down and having to do something that's concrete and in front of you (laughs) is going to be a test for both of us. It's going to be different. You can always do both, right? I mean, I certainly, you know, every morning I was also taking a hike in the woods, you know, so it's not like you have to make a choice necessarily. Definitely. Right. Yeah. Part of like what I like to do personally too, is add them kind of together, like you just said, combine something. So usually I'll find myself on the treadmill reading a book or like on a bike reading a book, a stationary bike, of course. And so it just really depends on what you find interesting. You're, you're a better multitasker than I am. <laughs> Nursing, you have no choice but to be a good multitasker. But as you talked about before, um, and I want to touch on this because I actually read a lot of it and it was really interesting to me, but with the coloring books themselves. And I know you did research on different forms of coloring per se. So um, you can kind of go off and talk about that, but I know you focused on three different forms. You had free form, which is basically like a blank piece of paper and having people just make up whatever they could probably think about. And then mandalas, as you spoke of, and then platform, which I can only think of as a plaid shirt. So I'm assuming that's exactly what I think it is. Pretty close. Yeah. Well, <laughs> So, so let me back up and talk about the origin of the study, okay? So, yes, please do. you know, when, when we did the study, which was about 2003 or so, um, it was not my idea at all. 
So as a professor, one of the, uh, my jobs was to supervise undergraduates research projects. So all senior psychology majors at Knox College had to do a, a two-term research project under the supervision of a professor. And so um, one of my students, whose name was Nancy Curry, um, you know, we let students study what they wanted to study more or less. And Nan wanted to study um, whether or not these kinds of uh, coloring of mandalas was actually effective because mm -hmm. uh, she had done a presentation in a psychotherapy class about them. Um, but there was, there was literally no research out there in order to test whether or not they uh, had the benefits that people were claiming that they had. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, Nian and I worked together to, to design the study, um, which to our knowledge is the very first study ever to empirical study where they collected data and experimental study where um, we tested the idea of whether or not coloring anything actually had, had beneficial effects on anxiety. Um, and so, so what we did in this study was we, we brought undergraduates into the lab and we measured their anxiety. And then we had them undergo an anxiety induction. That is what we did was we had them write about the time when they were most anxious because we wanted to study whether or not these could reduce anxiety. But of course, not all the students walking into the lab were necessarily anxious, right? Correct. So yeah. we, needed to make them, we needed to make them anxious first, right? <laughs> yes. Uh, and that works, you know, so we, we saw, because uh, then we measured their anxiety a second time, and we saw a significant increase from time one to time two in their anxiety. And then uh, the students were randomly assigned to either um, color in, we gave them five or six colored pencils, and they either colored in a mandala or they colored in a plaid form. So the plaid form is square, and it was made up entirely of smaller squares, and it had the exact same number of subsections as did the mandala design. So Ooh. it was just as complicated as the mandala design. Okay. Um, and then the third condition, as you mentioned, was a freeform one where we just gave them a blanket piece of paper and said, draw. And so regardless of what it was that they colored, um, they did it for 20 minutes and then we measured their anxiety a third time. Um, and what, you know, some people had claimed that um, there was something special about the mandala, okay? That, that something about the mandala mattered in order that circle form, um, that that was kind of the active ingredient in helping people not to feel anxious. Um, we weren't sure, we weren't saying no, but we weren't just saying yes. And that's why we wanted to have the plaid condition too, because in the plaid condition, people were coloring, but they weren't coloring mandala, right? Right. Um, and then in the freeform condition, people were kind of left to themselves to figure out what to do. Um, and so what we found was in our study that um, the people in the freeform condition, their anxiety did not go down at all from time two to time three. That is, it stayed high. Whereas mm -hmm. whether you colored a mandala or you colored a plaid, um, in our study, the anxiety dropped down uh, to where you were at time one. And in mm -hmm. fact, in the mandala condition, it dropped a little bit lower than where you were at time one um, before you'd even done the anxiety so, but, but both of them, both the plaid and the mandala were effective in reducing anxiety compared to the freeform condition. So um, what that suggested to us was that 
well, maybe the circle was a little bit stronger than the square, but not much if it was from our study. And so mm -hmm. really what seemed to matter was that there was um, some structured coloring that the people were given. And that that structured coloring um, was what we were able to find uh, reduced anxiety. Right. So you were saying that, and correct me if I'm wrong, that maybe it's not specifically the shapes that you're coloring, but the more intricate design that you have to focus more. So you kind of alleviate that anxiety in the process. Is that correct? That's possible. Yes. I mean, we okay. don't know for sure what the mechanism right. is. Um, you know, the, the study that we did um, did not you know, wasn't designed in order to test the mechanism. Mm -hmm. um, there, there have been studies since, which we can talk about, which have tried to look at what the mechanism might be. Um, but uh, in our study, all we knew for sure was, yeah, the people who were doing that structured coloring, that helped their anxiety. It definitely did. It's really interesting because I was thinking, this book that we're going to do for this series is by Dr. Stan Rodsky. He's a neuroscientist. And so looking at the book, he really broke it up into, you know, he even goes to the science of brain waves and what changes when you're coloring or what he expects us to find. And so looking at this, I already am not really into coloring, to be honest. And so I was looking at it and all the designs are very abstract, but they're so intricate. And so mm -hmm. my brain already is looking at this like, oh my gosh, we're going to have to <laughs> really just focus for this one. <laughs> and um, I don't know if you feel the same way, Olivia, but I, it was a little overwhelming at first. So I'm really excited to, to really um, hound into this and see what I get out of it. Definitely. I, I most certainly had to take a step back look at all of the pages and decide, okay, which one do I feel comfortable with starting first? <laughs> right. Because I, I really haven't colored or done anything like this in quite some time. So it's going to be, it's going to be interesting to see um, kind of how I adapt to it and how I, I go about it. Mm -hmm. So Dr. Kasser, um, mm -hmm. considering, I know, I don't, I know you did mandala specifically, but considering this is kind of new for both Olivia and I, do you have any advice for us, maybe in the realms of psychology or what you would, some advice at all to approaching this new outlet? Sure. Well, I, I think that, you know, one of the things we know is important is the issue of choice, right? Now, we didn't mm -hmm. give our students any choice in our study, right? right. But I, we, there has been one study that uh, asked people either to choose their own colors uh, when they colored a mandala or to actually copy the colors that were in the same mandala that somebody else had already colored, right? Mm -hmm. and they found that um, actually only when you chose it yourself, did uh, you chose the colors yourself, did your anxiety go down. Um, yeah. So just coloring something that somebody else told you to color didn't actually, uh, in the way they told you to color, didn't actually help. And so I do think that this issue, I, I forget which of you said it, but, you know, looking through the book and finding the one that you want to color um, and, you know, feeling, you know, following kind of, oh, I just feel like yellow now, or I just right. feel orange <laughs> now or whatever, you know, is, is a really good strategy for yourself. Um, you know, the other thing I would say is that, you know, I, I, I've never tried to say or, or claim that coloring is great for everybody. You know, I mean, it's, it, it may be what works well for some people, but it may mm -hmm. be that exercising is better or for you or for, 
um, you know, or playing music or whatever it is, right? right. So, you know, I, I, I don't think, um, you know, it's not like an anesthetic, which is going to knock everybody out, right? Right, um, it's not guaranteed. Right? It's, it's, you know, coloring's not that way, and I don't think anything psychological mm -hmm. that way. You know, there aren't one-size-fits-all solutions. So, you know, I, I would give it a shot, and but I, I think that, um, you know, follow follow what's feeling interesting and fun and challenging and if it's not feeling interesting and fun and challenging well then maybe it's not for you and you need to find something different but it might yeah. be for somebody else yeah we're keeping journals this whole time so i'm and our stress levels have both been kind of well hers are really high <laughs> but mine are <laughs> fluctuating day to day so having to focus on something and not think about i guess the world around me is going to be i think very i think it's going to be stress relieving hopefully mm -hmm. definitely yeah. and that's well, the really great thing just on that note the other piece of advice i would give you is you know while you're coloring it's likely that thoughts of stress thoughts of the things that are stressing you out are going to arise mm -hmm. right okay and my advice to you is at that point say yeah that's stressful but i'm not going to think about that right now because i'm coloring i'll think about that later i'm mm -hmm. just going to color right and then go back to the coloring you know and if something different comes up two minutes later that you're stressed about then say to yourself, yeah, I understand that's stressful, but right now I'm coloring and I'm going to go back <laughs> yeah. to coloring. And I, I think this is potentially one of the advantages of something like coloring is it can draw you back in, right? Mm -hmm. Instead of getting sucked into the thing you're stressed about and ruminating about it, continuing to think about it for the next 15 or 20 minutes or whatever, mm -hmm. you know, coloring is this nice alternative activity that um, can, can keep you from getting sucked into the thing that might um, make you more stressed. Correct. More mm -hmm. And one thing I love about it is you can do it whenever it works for you. It's not like, oh, okay, I'm yeah. going to go to the gym and I have to be here for a full hour and I'm not going to be able to leave and come back for 15, 20 minutes. Right. With coloring, I'm able to set the book down really quick and, and go do something if something comes up and then regather my thoughts and sit down and, and go back to it and be able to focus on it and enjoy the time that I have while sitting there and coloring. So I think that's one really neat aspect of, um, of trying this new alternative. Yeah, I agree. I've been using music. I already started coloring one page and I put headphones on because Dr. Kester, as beautiful as it would be for this brain to stop thinking about things, <laughs> I will just keep, I was trying to do it without music or something in my head. And exactly as you said, I just kept on thinking of things that are stressing me out and not focusing on the coloring at hand. And so I found if I put on classical music or something calming, that I was thinking more of the music and less of my other thoughts. So that's what, I don't know, we'll try different trial and errors, but that's what we've got so far. Yeah, I think that's good. And you know, I think the point about if you're, if you're not having fun or you're not finding it calming, then and you're forcing yourself to do it, well, that's mm -hmm. the time to set the coloring book down. Correct, yeah, totally agree. Definitely. Well, Dr. Kasser, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with both Carly and I today. We truly do appreciate all of your advice, your input, um, and hearing just a little bit more about you personally, as well as your experience, um, your research, your studies, mm -hmm. um, and how they've all linked together with the coloring books. Um, yeah. We, yes. We are 
more than grateful. Um, and we're just thrilled to have you here as our first guest on um, Happy Hour with Operation Happy Nurse. Um, and we'll also put some of your articles as well. And um, the campaign you spoke about as well, we'll have some information about that for our viewers that are listening. So you can check those out as well. Great. Sounds good. Definitely. And to our viewers. Good luck to you. Yeah. Thank you all you nurses out there for all that you've been doing just in general, but certainly during this really difficult uh, year of 2020. Oh, thank you. We appreciate that a lot. Yes, we definitely do. Um, So we hope that everyone um, enjoyed this episode of Happy Hour with Operation Happy Nurse. Um, Hopefully you guys are able to continue to follow us throughout our first coloring book series. And um, again, Dr. Kasser, thank you so much. And we look forward to chatting with you guys next time. Thank you.